Hello, and welcome back to the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Biosketch Series podcast. My name is Ryan Papple. I'm a third year medical student at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and a member of the RAMS Research Committee. To remind everyone, this is a podcast that highlights researchers in emergency medicine at all levels of training, from medical students to attendings. We discuss their paths into emergency medicine research, their ongoing research projects, and exciting new developments in emergency medicine. Today, we're excited to welcome Dr. Joshua Lupton to the podcast. Dr. Joshua Lupton is currently an instructor and research fellow for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. He received his medical doctorate from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in 2017 and completed his residency in emergency medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lupton. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. Great. How was your Thanksgiving? Our Thanksgiving was good and pretty quiet overall, just myself, my wife, and our little uh, one-year-old daughter. But we cooked some food and, and ate some food and had a good time. Great. Yeah, I figure a lot of them across the country are, tend to be smaller gatherings during these times. Yeah. How about yourself? Were you were, uh, in the hospital as a medical student or did they give you the day off? We luckily had some time off. I was lucky to have a little Thanksgiving celebration with my roommates here. Great. Good fun all around. All right. Why don't we start by discussing kind of what research you're doing now as as you're in your fellowship position? Yeah, absolutely. So my research interests focus on uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and a little bit more specifically on the out-of-hospital portion of the resuscitation. And so, you know, what sort of resuscitative interventions are associated with different outcomes. And at this current time, I'm mostly working on a local cardiac arrest registry in the Portland metropolitan region. And this is similar to past resuscitation outcomes consortiums type of registries across the country. It's one that's here local in Portland and allows us to uh, look at some observational research questions to get an idea of if there are any new interventions or different delivery of existing interventions, whether that be by timing or for instance, route of medication or those type of things that are associated with better outcomes and thus may drive future research questions or randomized trials. Excellent. And I actually have some training in as a paramedic myself prior to medical school. So I have a question kind of what aspects of of the pre-hospital environment in Portland lend itself well to this kind of research? Is it is it well-structured for this kind of centralized investigation? Yeah, so Portland, Portland is a great place for this research, not just because of the great EMS agencies, but because of their history of being involved in out-of-hospital arrest research and research in general. And so they were a major site for the Resuscitations Outcomes Consortium involved in multiple trials. Through that, most recently was the Pragmatic Airway Resuscitation Trial which was several different sites across the country, and Portland was a main site for that. Um, In the Portland area, there's four major counties, which includes some of Southwest Washington, and they're all involved in this new registry that that I'm coordinating. And every agency practices evidence-based medicine, but within the world of cardiac arrest, there's many different interventions where the evidence base may not be as strong. And so there's some degree of natural variability among these counties. And so while they're all high-performing EMS agencies, there may be some sort of natural experiments that in an observational way, we can determine if they're associated with better outcomes based on just the differences that agencies have in their approach to these cardiac arrest patients. Wow, that's a very interesting environment to have that variability to help answer the questions you have. 
So what sort of specific research questions are you examining right now? Or is that kind of more for the future after you've built this database? Yeah, so the the main project that I'm working on is a project that I have grant funding for, which is looking at if a way if we can define or, or derive, I guess to be more specific, a clinical decision rule that can predict early on in the pre-hospital setting patients that are at risk for a shock refractory cardiac arrest. And so the idea being that a certain proportion of patients with a cardiac arrest that have a shockable rhythm, which usually have the best outcome, for a certain proportion of patients, they have what we call a shock refractory arrest, where after multiple shocks, they uh, remain in a ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation rhythm. Typically for those patients, the ACLS algorithm would recommend waiting to do things like amiodarone or antiarrhythmic medications until after they've had three failed shocks, which would typically be between six to 10 minutes into a resuscitation. Other more advanced maneuvers, which have came about such as dual sequential defibrillation, things like esmolol, things like considering ECMO related care while someone is still under arrest, well, they occur even later in that time frame. And so this research project is looking at combination of existing registries that have been collected previously prospectively, as well as this prospective registry here in Oregon to see if I can derive a way with data that's available easily to paramedics, such as the age of the patient, if the arrest was witnessed or not, what sort of bystander interventions were were had, et cetera. So based on that simple amount of data, is there some degree of an algorithm that can come up that can show patients who are at very high risk for needing several shocks, but put them in that category early on before they even receive the first shock. And then the next set of of research, if we're able to sort of identify that high risk group would be, well, what happens if we intervene earlier in that group? Do they get less shocks overall? Do they have better outcomes overall? So that's probably the main focus of this two-year fellowship. The advantage of the, the data set locally, which is is being built in in many ways to validate this decision rule is that we can collect a lot of new variables and those may help refine the decision rule, but they also help us explore other topics as it relates to cardiac arrest, whether that be other factors that may predict who is likely to have shock success or shock failure, or again, just looking at other trends and interventions and outcomes across the Portland region. And do you have any initial thoughts or hypotheses about kind of what factors you're looking for that you feel will be influential in predicting that group? Yeah, it's tough to say. I think that typically we think of factors that overall have a poor prognosis for cardiac arrest being someone who has an unwitnessed arrest, who did not have bystander intervention and may have had the arrest in a non-public location or have advanced age. And typically those would be patients where you wouldn't be surprised to hear that they were in a systole initially or maybe a PEA type rhythm. Often if they had initially had a shockable rhythm and there was no bystander interventions and significant delay, they may be in a systole on EMS arrival. So is it the case that for a certain subset where they have all of those unfavorable factors, but happen to have an initial shockable rhythm, I guess the hypothesis would be perhaps that's a group that because of those unfavorable factors already is at such a high risk that they're very likely to need multiple shocks. That may not be the case. It may be the, the, the younger, more healthy individuals for whatever reason have higher amounts of shock arrest, or it may be unrelated to age and these factors. And it's related to the underlying cause of the arrest, whether that be patients that had chest pain or high likelihood of a, uh, you know, ischemic cardiac cause for their 
um, their shockable arrest. So it's a little um, tough to say. I think I would I would hope that with the available information, we can get a better idea. And even if we can just say that within those with a shockable arrest, we can identify a quarter of that population who's at high risk for needing multiple shocks early on. And that may still be a significant enough population that uh, warrants investigation with earlier interventions. Excellent. I mean, this seems like such a high octane topic, kind of really on that cutting edge of uh, very urgent resuscitation for these critically ill patients. How did your interest in this topic uh, come about? Yeah, so I've, I've been interested in, in research in general for a long time, and, and kind of we can talk about that path a little bit later. But you know, for me in medical school, I was interested or my research focus at the time was looking at some database researches that related to uh, cardiology and cardiac risk factors, not specific for cardiac arrest. And I was deciding between emergency medicine and uh, or potentially pursuing something like uh, cardiology or internal medicine towards that route. And in my third year of medical school, uh, after I had sort of decided emergency medicine was what I wanted to do, I'd finished my sub-I, I was running in a marathon race with my wife, and I actually had my own out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And uh, that occurred over outside of, in Maryland, about an hour away from where I was going to medical school. And as far as I know, I just woke up later on in the, in the ICU, um, ironically, at my, my medical school, where I had happily enjoyed a weekend away, only to find myself back there. But I think it was much, much worse from my wife's perspective, who had to see me um, collapse and get resuscitated and, and hear from everyone the, the very poor prognosis overall that cardiac arrest, particularly out-of-hospital arrest, has. And fortunately, I was able to make a, a full recovery. And I think through that experience, it sort of honed my initial interest somewhat in cardiac emergencies to be pretty specific to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and how we can improve outcomes for that subset of patients as best we can. Uh, that is such a had to be a profound experience. And I'm so glad you had such a favorable outcome. In your experience, when when you're surrounded by colleagues and uh, other people in your department, or uh, you know, back when you're a medical student, uh, fellow students who are interested in research, do you still find this kind of, these personal ties to research topics that either as grave as yours, or even smaller in intensity that kind of drive motivation and research for medical students and younger professionals? Yeah, I mean, I think for certain folks, they have a personal experience, whether it be with family or themselves, that sort of makes them interested in an area. And that's probably true, whether it be research or just choosing their specialty of interest. That being said, I think there's plenty of, of people who have led research fields in specific kind of niches that have had no personal interaction or personal experience with that. And I certainly don't think it's an absolute requirement. I think if someone's passionate about something enough to to focus on it for research, then then by all means, that can kind of be where their career takes them. I see. So just to pivot very briefly, we were talking kind of before planning this podcast, and I kind of found out you had a, a pretty interesting path to medical school and into research with some, it sounds like a couple gap years. you mind telling our listeners about that and how it's impacted your journey to where you are now? Sure, Yeah. I, uh, in college, like many, many kind of pre-med students did uh, research. I focused on more basic science research, working in a developmental neuroscience lab. And I did apply for medical school right out at the end of college and was accepted, but I, I deferred for a couple of years because I received a scholarship called the Marshall Scholarship, which 
essentially forwards for two years of education in the United Kingdom. So I went and spent one year at the University of Cambridge doing really basic science research in, and got an MPhil and did the thesis and the defense and everything. And, and really, it, while I had a great appreciation for that route of research, I was very interested in kind of seeing the more public health side of biomedical research. And so for my second year, I did a master's in public health in London at the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And, and that was a great experience as well. And it really allowed me to get some training in epidemiology and statistics and also just kind of general public health knowledge and training. And, and that was a great experience to have even before medical school. And it certainly changed my perspective as a medical student going through that training process and getting involved in research in that context. Uh, whereas I think for many uh, physicians that have MPHs, they often will do it after their medical training. And I think there's advantages and disadvantages to, um, to both, but it was a nice kind of overall complement of training that helped me to get into and continue research in, in medical school. And I certainly still use those skills here as a fellow and, and working towards a long-term research career. Excellent. So there's no doubt that this past year has been really kind of crazy with this coronavirus pandemic and the far-reaching consequences of what these restrictions in various locales have done and and modifications to really how we do things in medicine and and across our society at this time. I understand you've come into this research fellowship. It sounds like you're working on a lot of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest stuff, which could involve both the medical centers, but also outside the medical centers in the pre-hospital environment. What do you feel or how do you feel the, the coronavirus pandemic has impacted or not impacted your ability to perform the research you're doing? Uh, I mean, I think like with every aspect of life, it's undoubtedly had some degree of an impact. I think just on the practical stance, you know, except for working clinical shifts as a emergency medicine physician, I do almost all of my work from from home, particularly the research that I'm doing that's more on database and registry research. I, you know, I think in the medical community, there's been an appropriate shift in focus that's that's been more on coronavirus. And so I think having uh, a degree of patience with research interests that long-term may not align with kind of the current needs of, of coronavirus makes sense in this in this time. So for me, that's, you know, being patient with getting the different EMS agencies on board with the registry and kind of focusing on as we build the registry in the short term, any aspects that may be helpful for the coronavirus kind of pandemic. And so, you know, there's been components where we're getting a better idea of what patients have, um, you know, DNR orders that are already established when they're um, when paramedics arrive for a cardiac arrest and are those available to them or is there some degree of unnecessary exposure that's occurring for patients who otherwise had wished to be DNR but may not have had those orders ready. And so there's kind of some unique aspects to the registry that we're collecting. And, you know, we're not quite to the point of analyzing that data or seeing if it's meaningful, but as this pandemic goes on and, and other ones may be around in the future, if there's anything we can think to do with this registry that can get a better idea of how we can either improve outcomes for cardiac arrest patients or for, for paramedics and for pre-hospital responders decrease their exposure in an, in an unnecessary way, then, then we'll do so. Um, but for the most part, I think we've, we've been able to, as both a research center and, and for me personally, you know, still kind of move forward with the research we're, we're working on and add a little bit of sprinkles of COVID-related research along the way. Um, I'm fortunate to still be able to be involved in 
the um, ice cap cardiac arrest trial here where I just help out as one of the site co-investigators, but we've been able to enroll some patients and that trial has moved forward and it's not necessarily one specific to coronavirus, but like anything, it's, it's impacted by it. Great. And as a research fellow in your first year out of residency, is there any particular aspect of, of your new processes and fellowship particular in your, in your conduction of research that you found difficult to deal with as you're working through your projects and also kickstarting your academic career? Yeah, I think it's always difficult when, you know, the fellowship's a two-year fellowship and that time goes pretty quick. And anytime you're starting something, the the time to ramp everything up certainly takes longer than anticipated and has more hiccups and pitfalls than you can anticipate going into it. But, you know, I think it's that plus kind of the balance of everything else, you know, as, as a research fellow or, or for the most part fellowships in general, you know, typically those involved are new out of residency and there's a lot of kind of clinical development that occurs during that time. And being involved in an academic medical center, there's plenty of additional opportunities to get involved even before this unique kind of situation with the coronavirus pandemic. And so I think the balance of keeping a focus while also wanting to be involved in, in the academic community and teaching and other things, as well as improve on and further develop like clinical skills is, is always going to be a tough balance. So I think as any new fellow, particularly in the first year, like finding that balance and, and hitting the ground running as best you can with research is, is a difficult act that no one's probably perfected. And just to add some context for our listeners who may be medical students and residents uh, kind of looking forward to fellowships of their own, how does your research fellowship fit into your ultimate career goal? And where do you think your path will ultimately lie in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, so the research fellowship is is sort of a, a nice chunk of dedicated time to focus on specific kind of career developmental skills. And for some folks that may be getting a, a higher degree, such as a master's in clinical research or public health, for me, it's more taking kind of individualized biostatistics courses or things to sort of develop advanced skills in a research niche. And then it also allows protected time to just get experience with research while you still have great mentors. So I'm lucky to have an amazing set of mentors here at OHSU, and they help me get uh, feedback on, you know, writing a grant application or navigating kind of these, the balance of trying to do research while being a clinician and being as part of a faculty at a university. And so I think the two-year research fellowship kind of fits in as it helps you develop those skills. And then ideally at the end, you're put into a position where you can be competitive to apply for formalized career developmental awards from like the NIH or from other foundations like SAEM to kind of continue on that early investigator path. And, you know, I think the more that I am involved in research, the more I realize that, you know, you're sort of always in a mentor, you're always being mentored and always trying to mentor others. And so I think that from this path after the fellowship, hopefully I'll, I'll kind of move on to the early investigator path, which means I'll still have mentors and still have plenty of career development plans um, and then, you know, continue to mentor other people behind me. So that's kind of the hope that in the next few years, I'll transition to, the, to one of those awards, but we'll see where things take us. And best of luck as you approach that, that next step. I heard it can be a big one. All right. And as we're wrapping up here, this is a, a podcast oriented a lot toward medical students and residents, especially with research in mind. Is there any particular advice you'd have for them as they're looking to get more involved in research in emergency medicine? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think reaching out for those faculty or fellows or or residents um, that are doing projects that seem to be in an area of your interest is always great. I mean, I think being excited about a project and having specific interests when reaching out is is great. I also think just in general, not hesitating if you're interested in getting involved in research to reaching out and and to understand that you know you may reach out and you know, hopefully you, you get some degree of response, but it may be that there's not a project available for you from that individual, but hopefully they'll point you in the right direction. And certainly I don't think any, any researchers ever sad to, to have contacts from medical students, residents, or, or others involved that are interested in getting involved in research. Cause you know, that's sort of why we do it is to do the research ourselves, but a huge part, at least for me, that is motivating is being able to mentor others who are interested in research and kind of the research methods and getting involved. So I think the biggest device is just reach out if you're interested and ask for help if you're not sure what to do. Think of your own skills and see how you can help and try to research about the topics for the the folks that you're contacting and see if there's a way that you can kind of fit in to, to join the team. Excellent. Great, Dr. Lupin. We always love to end our segment asking a more off-topic fun question. So here's mine for you. In spite of all going on with COVID right now, all the restrictions and shutdowns, What's been your favorite hobby to pass the time that you've still been able to do? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly there's not a lot we can do these days, but the thing that we probably do the most is going on on walks still with my wife and daughter. My my kids finally walking around now. And so it's pretty fun to get out and get fresh air and get out of the house, especially now that we're we're home all day when I'm not working, doing, you know, meetings if I'm doing meetings or doing kind of office work. And so just getting out and walking around our neighborhood is great and being able to be out in in nature is something that's pretty relaxing, especially in these stressful times. So that's probably what I've been doing the most of these days. Great. I've heard Oregon's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, definitely it is. All right. And that wraps up the latest episode of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine RAMS Biosketch podcast series. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Lupton, again for coming on and sharing your story thus far, which I can tell is only the start of a very interesting research career. And thank you so much to y'all, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time.